The suggestion that Jesus is not, according to the Bible, quote, very God of very God, is likely to prove startling to those accustomed to the widely held views of the major denominations. It's not generally known that many students of the Bible throughout the ages, including a considerable number of contemporary scholars, have not concluded that Scripture describes Jesus as, quote, God with a capital G. A difference of opinion on such a fundamental issue should challenge all of us to an examination of the important question of Jesus' identity. If our worship is to be, as the Bible demands, quote, in spirit and in truth, John 4.24, it's clear that we will want to understand what the Bible discloses about Jesus and his relationship to his Father. Scripture warns us that it's possible to fall into the trap of believing in, quote, another Jesus. You'll find that in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4. A, quote, Jesus other than the one revealed in the Bible as God's Son, the Messiah, promised by the prophets of the Old Testament. It is a striking fact that Jesus never referred to himself as, quote, God. Equally remarkable is the New Testament's use of the word, quote, God, in Greek, otheos, to refer to the Father alone some 1,325 times. In sharp contrast, Jesus is called lowercase g-o-d, God, in a handful of texts only, perhaps no more than two. Why this impressive difference in New Testament usage when so many seem to think that Jesus is no less capital G-O-D, God, than his Father. I note that Rudolf Bultmann, for example, in his essays, Philosophical and Theological, claims that John 20, 28 is the only sure instance in the New Testament of the title God being applied to Jesus. Most would agree that Hebrews 1, verse 8 is a second clear instance. Note the careful translation of the New American Bible, Your throne, O God, with lowercase g there. Your throne, O God, stands forever, Psalm 45, verse 6. The God of the Bible is designated thousands of times by the singular personal pronoun I, or you, or he, and so on. Singular personal pronouns describe a single person, not three. Of the nearly 4,400 occurrences of the word God, with a capital G in the Bible, not one of them can be shown to mean, quote, God existing in three persons. This fact should convince the open-minded that the Bible never presents God as a trinity. The triune God is foreign to Scripture. Old Testament monotheism confirmed by Jesus and Paul. Readers of Scripture in the 21st century may not easily appreciate the strength of the monotheism, that's to say belief in one God, 
which was the first principle of all Old Testament teaching about God. The Jews were prepared to die for their conviction that the true God was a single person. Any idea of plurality in the Godhead was rejected as dangerous idolatry. The law and the prophets had repeatedly insisted that only one was truly God, and no one could have envisaged, quote, distinctions within the Godhead once he'd committed to memory texts like the following, quoted here from the New American Standard Bible. I quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Another quote, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? That's in Malachi 2, verse 10. Another quotation, Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. That's in Isaiah 43, verse 10. Another quotation, I am God, and there is no other. Isaiah 45, verse 22. I am God, and there is no one like me. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Examples of strictly monotheistic statements can be multiplied from the Old Testament. The important fact to observe is that Jesus, as founder of Christianity, confirmed and reinforced the Old Testament insistence that God is one. According to the records of his teaching, compiled by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus said nothing at all to disturb belief in the absolute oneness of God. When a scribe, a theologian that is, quoted the famous words, God is one and there is none else beside him, Jesus commended him because he had, quote, spoken intelligently and was, quote, not far from the kingdom of God. You'll find that in Mark chapter 12 verses 29 to 34. In John's account of Jesus' ministry, Jesus equally confirmed the unrestricted monotheism of his Jewish heritage in words which cannot be misunderstood. He spoke of God, his Father, as, quote, the one who alone is God. You'll find that in John 5, verse 44. And another quote, the only true God, John 17, verse 3. Throughout his recorded discourses, Jesus referred the word God to the Father only. Not once did he ever say that he was God, a notion which would have sounded both absurd and blasphemous. Jesus' unitary monotheistic phrases in John 5, verse 44, and John 17, 3, are echoes of the Old Testament view of God as one unique person. We can easily discern the Jewish and Old Testament orthodoxy of Paul, who spoke of his Christian belief in, quote, one God the Father. That's in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. And the one God as distinct from the one mediator between God and man, Messiah Jesus, himself man, 
You find that in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For both Jesus and Paul, God was a single, uncreated being. Quote, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's from Ephesians 1, verse 3. Even after Jesus had been exalted to the right hand of the Father, the Father is still, in Jesus' own words, his God, the God of Jesus. You'll find that in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. We may summarize our discussion so far by quoting the words of L. L. Payne, at one time professor of ecclesiastical history at Bangor Theological Seminary. I quote, The Old Testament is strictly monotheistic. God is a single personal being. The idea that a trinity is to be found there, or even in any way shadowed forth, is an assumption that has long held sway in theology, but is utterly without foundation. The Jews, as a people, under its teachings became stern opponents of all polytheistic tendencies, and they have remained unflinching monotheists to this day. On this point, there is no break between the Old Testament and the New. The monotheistic tradition is continued. Jesus was a Jew, trained by Jewish parents in the Old Testament scriptures. His teaching was Jewish to the core, a new gospel indeed, but not a new theology. He declared that he came, quote, not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And he accepted as his own belief the great text of Jewish monotheism. Quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. His proclamation concerning himself was in line with Old Testament prophecy. He was the, quote, Messiah of the promised kingdom, the Son of Man of Jewish hope. If he sometimes asked, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He gave no answer beyond the implied assertion of messiahship. That's from L. L. Payne in his book, A Critical History of the Evolution of Trinitarianism, written in 1900. The strength of Jewish feeling about monotheism is well illustrated by the following quotations. I quote, the belief that God is made up of several personalities, such as the Christian belief in the Trinity, is a departure from the pure conception of the unity of God. Israel has throughout the ages rejected everything that marred or obscured the conception of pure monotheism, which it has given to the world. And rather than admit any weakening of it, Jews are prepared to wander, to suffer, and to die. That's a quotation from Rabbi J. H. Hertz. And then Ezra D. Gifford, in his book, The True God, The True Christ, and The True Holy Spirit, says, I quote, The Jews themselves sincerely resent the implication 
that their scriptures contain any proof or any intimation of the doctrine of the Orthodox Trinity. And Jesus and the Jews never differed on this subject, both maintaining that God is one only and that this is the greatest truth revealed to man. If we examine the recorded teachings of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, remembering that these documents represent the understanding of the Apostolic Church in the 60s to the 80s AD, we will find not a hint that Jesus believed himself to be an uncreated being who had existed from eternity. Matthew and Luke trace the origin of Jesus to a special act of creation by God when the Messiah's conception took place in the womb of Mary. It was this miraculous event which marked the beginning, the genesis, the Greek word there is genesis, and I'm using modern Greek pronunciation, the genesis or origin of Jesus of Nazareth. You'll find that in Matthew 1, verses 18 and 20. Nothing at all is said of any, quote, eternal sonship, implying that Jesus had been alive as a son before his conception. That idea was introduced into Christian circles after the New Testament documents had been completed. It does not belong to the thought world of the biblical writers. I note that the phrase eternal generation of the son which is the linchpin of Orthodox Trinitarianism, has no meaning, since to generate means to bring into existence, while eternity lies outside time. Compare with that the protest of Dr. Adam Clark, who said the following, I trust I may be permitted to say, with all due respect for those who differ from me, that the doctrine of the eternal sonship of Christ is, in my opinion, anti-scriptural and highly dangerous. To say that Jesus was begotten from all eternity is, in my opinion, absurd. The phrase eternal son is a positive self-contradiction. Eternity is that which has no beginning nor stands in any reference to time. But the word son supposes time and generation and father, and time also antecedent to such generation. Therefore, the conjunction of these two terms, son and eternity, is absolutely impossible, as they imply essentially different and opposite ideas. That's from Adam Clark's commentary on Luke 1 verse 35. Another Dr. J. O. Buswell writes, quote, we can say with confidence that the Bible has nothing whatsoever to say about begetting as an eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. 
That's from his Systematic Theology of the Christian Religion, written in 1962. Whoever said the Messiah was God? Most readers of Scripture approach the divine records with a well-established set of assumptions. They are unaware of the fact that much of what they understand about Jesus is derived from theological systems devised by writers outside the Bible. In this way, they readily accept a large dose of tradition while claiming and believing that the Bible is their sole authority. I'm indebted here to the well-known F.F. Bruce for the following keen observation. He wrote, People who adhere to sola scriptura, as they believe, often adhere, in fact, to a traditional school of interpretation of sola scriptura. Evangelical Protestants can be as much servants of tradition as Roman Catholics or Greek Orthodox Christians, except that they don't realize that it is tradition. That quote is from Correspondence With Me. The crucial question we must answer is this. On what basis did Jesus and the early church claim that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah? The answer is plain. It was by contending that he perfectly fulfilled the role which the Old Testament had predicted of him. It had to be demonstrated that he fit the specifications laid out for the Messiah in Hebrew prophecy. Matthew particularly delights in quoting the Old Testament as it was fulfilled in the facts of Jesus' life and experience. See, for example, Matthew 1, verse 23, Matthew 2, verse 6, and verse 15, and so on. But Mark and Luke and John and Peter, particularly in the early chapters of Acts, equally insist that Jesus exactly fits the Old Testament description of the Messiah. Paul spent much of his ministry demonstrating from the Hebrew Scriptures that Jesus was the promised Christ. You'll find that in Acts 28, verse 23. Unless Jesus' identity could be matched with the Old Testament description of him, there would be no good reason to believe that his claim to Messiahship was true. It is essential to ask, therefore, whether the Old Testament anywhere suggests that the Messiah was to be, quote, co-equal God, a second uncreated being who abandons an eternal existence in heaven in order to become man. If it does not say anything like this, and remembering that the Old Testament is concerned even with minute details about the coming Messiah, then we will have to treat as suspicious the claims of anyone saying that Jesus is both Messiah and an uncreated second and eternal person of the Godhead. 
claiming the title, quote, God in the full sense. What portrait of the Messiah is drawn by the Hebrew Scriptures? When the New Testament Christians seek to substantiate Jesus' claim to Messiahship, they are fond of quoting Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, speaking of Moses there, and I will put my words into his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. Both Peter, in Acts 3, verse 22, and Stephen, in Acts 7, 37, use this primary text to show that Jesus was indeed, quote, that promised prophet, John 6, verse 14, whose origin would be in an Israelite family and whose function would be similar to that of Moses. In Jesus, God had raised up the Messiah, the long-promised divine spokesman, the Savior of Israel and the world. In Peter's words, quote, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. That's in Acts 3, verse 26. Other classic messianic texts promised that, quote, a son will be born to Israel. Isaiah 9, verse 6. The, quote, seed of a woman. Genesis 3, verse 15. A descendant of Abraham. Galatians 3, 16. And a descendant of David's royal house. 2 Samuel 7, verses 14 to 16, and Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. He would be a ruler born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2, verse 6, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Of his several titles, one would be Mighty God, with lowercase g there, and another Everlasting Father. Isaiah 9, verse 6. It is this single text in Isaiah 9, verse 6, which might appear to put the Messiah into a category of uncreated beings. Though this would, of course, provoke a crisis for monotheism. However, the sensitive reader of Scripture will be aware that a single text should not be allowed to overthrow the Old Testament's insistence that only one person is truly God. It should not be forgotten that the sacred oracles were committed to the Jews, none of whom thought that a divine title given to the Messianic king meant that he was a member of an eternal Godhead, now composed suddenly and mysteriously of two persons, in contradiction of all that the heritage of Israel had stood for. The mighty God of Isaiah 9 verse 6 is defined by the leading Hebrew lexicon as, quote, divine hero, reflecting the divine majesty. The same authority records that the word God, with lowercase g, used by Isaiah, is applied elsewhere in Scripture to, quote, men 
of might and rank, as well as to angels. As for the expression Eternal Father, this title was understood by the Jews as Father of the Coming Age. It was widely recognized that a human figure could be Father to the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. See, for example, Isaiah 22, verse 21. That father of the coming age was the way Jews rendered the Hebrew expression when they translated their scriptures into Greek. In Psalm 45, the ideal messianic king is addressed as God, but there's no need whatever to assume that Jewish monotheism has therefore been compromised. The word, in this case Elohim, was applied not only to the one God, but to divine representatives at sacred places, or as reflecting divine majesty and power. So says the Hebrew and English lexicon of the Old Testament by Brown, Driver, and Briggs. The psalmist and the writer to the Hebrews who quoted him in Hebrews 1 verse 8 were conscious of their specialized use of the word God to describe the Messianic King, and they quickly added that the Messiah's God had granted him his royal privileges. See Psalm 45 verse 7. Even the frequently quoted text in Micah 5 verse 2 about the origins of Messiah does not necessitate any kind of literal, eternal pre-existence. In the same book, a similar expression dates the promises made to Jacob from, quote, days of old. You read that in Micah 7, verse 20. And compare the remark of Couch, where he says, I quote, the reference in Micah 5, verse 2, is to remote antiquity. Deuteronomy 32, verse 7, shows that this is the meaning of the phrase days of old, not days of eternity, as if what was spoken of were the eternal preexistence of the Messiah. I'm quoting there from Hastings' Dictionary of the Bible and the pulpit commentary on Micah, observes that, quote, eternal generation, humanly speaking, is a theological fiction, a philosophical absurdity. Certainly the promises of Messiah had been given at an early moment in the history of man. Read that in Genesis 3, verse 15. Compare with that text, Genesis 49, verse 10, and Numbers 24, verses 17 to 19. Approaching the question of Jesus' Messiahship as he and the apostles do, we find nothing at all in the Old Testament predictions about the Christ which suggest that an eternal, immortal being was to become human as the promised king of Israel. That king was, in fact, to be born in Israel, a descendant of David and conceived by a virgin. 
2 Samuel 7, verses 13 to 16, Isaiah 7, verse 14, and Matthew 1, verse 23. And so, during the reign of Emperor Augustus, the Messiah arrived on the scene. The Son of God, the source of much long-standing confusion about Jesus' identity, is the assumption drawn from years of traditional thinking that the title, quote, Son of God, must mean in the Scriptures an uncreated being, the member of an eternal Godhead. That notion cannot possibly be traced to the Scriptures. It's a testimony to the power of theological indoctrination that this idea persists so stubbornly. In the Bible, Son of God, that title, is an alternative and virtually synonymous title for the Messiah. Thus John dedicates his whole gospel to one dominant theme, that we believe and understand that, quote, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. John 20, verse 31. The basis for equating these titles is found in a favorite Old Testament passage in Psalm 2. I quote, The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, or caps L-O-R-D, the one God, and against his Messiah, whom he has installed as king in Jerusalem, and of whom he says, quote, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. That's Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. Jesus does not hesitate to apply the whole psalm to himself, and sees in it a prediction of his and his followers' future rulership over the nations. Revelation 2, verse 26 and 27. I note that a weakness of most theological systems is the refusal to see in the statements attributed to Jesus in Revelation the very words of the Master. When the Christology of the Revelation is set aside, the claims of Jesus in the book, as in Revelation 1 verse 1, are denied, and a distorted Christology results. Approaching the question of Jesus' Messiahship, as he and the Apostles do, we find nothing at all in the Old Testament predictions about the Christ which suggests that an eternal, immortal being was to become human as the promised king of Israel. That king was to be born in Israel, a descendant of David, and conceived by a virgin. 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 to 16, and Isaiah 7, verse 14, and Matthew 1, verse 23. And so, during the reign of Emperor Augustus, the Messiah arrived on the scene. 
The source of much long-standing confusion about Jesus' identity is the assumption drawn from years of traditional thinking that the title Son of God must mean in the Scriptures an uncreated being, the member of an eternal Godhead. But that notion cannot possibly be traced to the Scriptures. It's a testimony to the power of theological indoctrination that this idea persists so stubbornly. In the Bible, Son of God is an alternative and virtually synonymous title for the Messiah. Thus, John dedicates his whole gospel to one dominant theme that we believe and understand, quote, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. John 20, verse 31. The basis for equating these titles is found in a favorite Old Testament passage in Psalm 2. I quote, The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, whom he's installed as king in Jerusalem. Verse 6, And of whom he says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Verses 7 and 8. Jesus does not hesitate to apply the whole psalm to himself and sees in it a prediction of his and his followers' future rulership over the nations. Revelation 2, verse 26 and 27. A weakness of most theological systems is the refusal to see in the statements attributed to Jesus in Revelation the very words of the Master. When the Christology of the book of Revelation is set aside, the claims of Jesus in the book, as in Revelation 1, verse 1, are denied, and a distorted Christology results. Peter makes the same equation of Messiah and Son of God when by divine revelation he affirms his belief in Jesus. I quote, Thou art the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. The high priest asks Jesus, quote, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Mark 14, verse 61. Nathaniel understands that the Son of God is none other than the King of Israel. You'll find that in John 1, 49, the King of Israel being the Messiah. In verse 41, I quote, Him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Verse 45, Compare with that then Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 18. The title, quote, Son of God, is applied also in Scripture to angels. Job 1, verse 6, Job 2, verse 1, Job 38, verse 7, and also Genesis 6, verse 2 and 4, Psalm 29, verse 1, and Psalm 89, verse 6. In addition, Daniel 3, verse 25. Son of God is applied to Adam. Luke 3, 
verse 38, and to the nation of Israel, Exodus 4, verse 22, to kings of Israel as representing God, and in the New Testament, to Christians, as in John 1, verse 12. We would search in vain to find any application of this title to an uncreated being, a member of an eternal Godhead. This idea is simply absent from the biblical idea of divine sonship. Luke knows very well that Jesus' divine sonship is derived from his conception in the womb of a virgin. He knows nothing at all of any eternal origin. I quote, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, precisely, the Greek there is dioke, for that reason, precisely, the holy thing which is begotten will be called the Son of God. Luke 1, verse 35. The psalmist had ascribed the Messiah's sonship to a definite moment of time, today, as in Psalm 2, verse 7. And the Messiah was begotten or brought into existence around 3 BC. Matthew 1, verse 20. Luke 1, verse 35. His begetting, his being caused to come into existence, is thus related to his appearance in history. Acts 13, verse 33. But don't read the King James Version in that particular verse. That was the time when God became his Father. Hebrews 1, verse 5, and 1 John 5, verse 18. And again there, do not read the King James Version in that verse, 1 John 5, 18. Here, clearly presented by the scriptures which Jesus recognized as God's word, are the biblical ideas of Jesus' sonship. It is to be dated from Jesus' conception, his resurrection, or from his appointment to kingship. Luke's view of sonship agrees exactly with the hope for the birth of the Messiah from the woman, a descendant of Adam, Abraham, and David. Matthew 1, verse 1, and Luke 3, verse 38. The texts we have examined contain no information about a personal pre-existence for the Son in eternity. The Son of Man, the Lord, at God's right hand. The title Son of Man was frequently used by Jesus to refer to himself. Like the term Son of God, it is closely associated with Messiahship, so much so that when Jesus solemnly affirms that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, he adds in the same breath that the high priest will see, quote, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You'll find that in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62. The title Son of Man is most fully described in Daniel 7, 
verses 13 and 14, where a human figure, a, quote, son of man, receives the right to world dominion from the Father. The parallel with Psalm 2 is obvious, as well as the close connection with Psalm 110, where David referred to his Lord, with lowercase l there, the Messiah, who is to sit at the Lord's, capital L-O-R-D, referring to the Father, to sit at the Lord's or the Father's right hand until he takes up his office as world governor and, quote, rules in the midst of his enemies. You'll find that in Psalm 110, verse 2, and compare with that Matthew 22, verses 42 to 45. I quote, Let your hand be upon your right-hand man, upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. That Son of Man, then, has an equally clear messianic connection in Psalm 80, verse 17, which I just quoted. It's significant that the New Testament writers lay the greatest stress on Psalm 110, citing it some 23 times and applying it to Jesus, who had been by that time exalted as Messianic Lord to immortality at the right hand of the Father, just as the psalmist had foreseen. Once again, we must recognize that eternal sonship is alien to all the descriptive titles of the Messiah. This startling fact should lead Bible students everywhere to compare what they've been taught about Jesus with the Jesus presented by Scripture. It would appear that an eternal son will not match the Bible's account of the Messiah. In opting for a Jesus who is an eternal being passing through a temporary life on earth, many seem, so to speak, to have, quote, got the wrong man. Jesus claimed not to be God. In the Gospel of John, the identity of Jesus is a principal theme. John wrote, as he tells us, with one primary purpose to convince his readers that Jesus, quote, is the Messiah, the Son of God. John 20, verse 31. According to John, Jesus carefully distinguished himself from the Father who is, quote, the only true God. John 17, 3. And compare with that John 5, 44, and John 6, verse 27. If we are to find in John's record a proof that Jesus is, quote, co-equal God in the Trinitarian sense, we would be discovering something which John did not intend and, in view of his Jewish heritage, would not have understood. Alternatively, we would have to admit that John introduces a brand new picture of messiahship which contradicts the Old Testament and overthrows John's and Jesus' own insistence that only the Father is truly God. As we read in John 5, verse 44, 
and John 17, verse 3. Such a glaring self-contradiction is hardly possible. I note that it should be observed that John is as undeviating a witness as any in the New Testament to the fundamental tenet of Judaism, of unitary monotheism. Compare with that Romans 3, verse 30, James 2.19. There's the one true and only God. John 5, verse 44, John 17, verse 3. That's a quotation from J.A.T. Robinson in his 12 more New Testament studies. Jesus referred to the Father as the only one who is truly God. John 17, 3. Such statements should end all argument. Only the Father is the one true God. It is high time, then, that we allow Jesus to set the record straight. In Matthew's, Mark's, and Luke's accounts, we are told that Jesus explicitly subscribed to the strict monotheism of the Old Testament. Mark 12, verses 28 to 34. Did he therefore, according to John, confuse the issue by claiming, after all, to be God? The answer is given plainly in John 10, verses 34 to 36, where Jesus defined his status in terms of the human representatives of God in the Old Testament. Jesus gave this account of himself in explanation of what it means to be, quote, one with the Father. John 10, verse 30. It's a oneness of function by which the Son perfectly represents the Father. That is exactly the Old Testament ideal of sonship, which had been imperfectly realized in the rulers of Israel, but would find perfect fulfillment in the Messiah, God's chosen King. The argument in John 10 verses 29 to 38, is as follows. Jesus began by claiming that he and the Father were one. It was a oneness of fellowship and function which on another occasion he desired also for his disciples' relationship with him and the Father. You'll find that in John 17, verses 11 and 22. The Jews understood him to be claiming equality with God. This gave Jesus an opportunity to explain himself what he was actually claiming. So he says, was to be son of God. That's in verse 36. A recognized synonym for Messiah. The claim to sonship was not unreasonable, Jesus argued, in view of the well-known fact that even imperfect representatives of God had been addressed by God in the Old Testament as gods with lowercase g. You'll find that in Psalm 82, verse 6. Far from establishing any claim to eternal sonship, Jesus compared his office and function to that of the judges. He considered himself God's representative par excellence since he was uniquely God's son 
the one and only Messiah, supernaturally conceived and the object of all Old Testament prophecy. There's absolutely nothing, however, in Jesus' account of himself which interferes with the Old Testament monotheism or requires a rewriting of the sacred text in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Jesus' self-understanding is strictly within the limits laid down by God's authoritative revelation in Scripture. Otherwise, his claim to be the Messiah would have been invalid. The Scriptures would have been broken. John's Jewish Language Since Jesus expressly denied that he was God, in John 10, verses 34 to 36, it will be most unwise to think that he contradicted himself elsewhere. John's gospel should be examined with certain axiomatic principles firmly in mind. Jesus is distinct from the only true God. John 17, 3. The Father alone is God. John 5, verse 44. John wishes his readers to understand that all that he writes contributes to the one great truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. John 20, verse 31. Jesus himself says, as we've seen, that the term God can be used of a human being representing God, but certainly does not imply, quote, co-equal Godship. Jesus' own self-designation is plainly Son of God, John 10, 36, and in John 10, verses 24 and 25, Jesus told them, quote, plainly that he was the Messiah, but they did not believe him. Jesus states often that he's been, quote, sent by God. What the average reader hears in that phrase is not at all what John implies. John the Baptist was also, quote, sent from God, which does not, of course, mean that he pre-existed his birth. John 1, verse 6. Prophets, in general, are sent from God, according to Judges 6, verse 8, and Micah chapter 6, verse 4. And the disciples themselves are to be, quote, sent as Jesus was, quote, sent. We find that in John 17, verse 18. Quote, coming down from heaven need not mean descent from a previous life any more than Jesus' quote, flesh, which is the bread which came down from heaven, literally descended from the sky. John 6, verses 50 and 51. Nicodemus recognized that Jesus had, quote, come from God, John 3, verse 2, but did not think of him as preexistent. Nor did the Jewish people, when they spoke of the prophet, quote, who was to come into the world, John 6, 14, compared with that Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 18, that did not mean that he was alive before his birth. James can say that, quote, every good thing bestowed 
and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. James 1.17 Coming down from heaven in Jesus and the Jews' graphic way of describing divine origin, which certainly belonged to Jesus through his virgin birth. The pre-existence so-called statements in John, for example, John 3.13, are connected with the Son of Man, which means human being. Alternatively, Jesus' quote, ascension may be a reference to his knowledge of divine secrets. Compare with that then Proverbs chapter 30, verses 3 and 4. The most that could be proved from these verses is that Jesus was a human being, alive in heaven before he was born on earth. But that sort of explanation is unnecessary. Once it is noted that Daniel had 600 years earlier seen the Son of Man in vision in the presence of the Father. We find that in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, a position which the New Testament says Jesus gained by resurrection and ascension. As Messiah, Jesus saw himself in the role of the one who was later to be exalted to heaven, since this, according to Daniel's inspired vision, was the destiny of the Messiah prior to his second coming in glory. Jesus does indeed, quote, pre-exist his future return to the earth. All this had been seen in advance by Daniel before the birth of the Messiah. Thus Jesus expected to ascend to the right hand of the Father where he had been seen before in vision as an exalted human being, the Son of Man. John 6, verse 62. To say that Jesus was actually at the Father's throne in heaven as a human being before his birth in Bethlehem is to misunderstand both John and Daniel. Jesus had to be born before anything predicted of him in the Old Testament could take place. Glory before Abraham. Jesus found his own history written in the Hebrew Scriptures. Luke 24, verse 27. The role of the Messiah was clearly outlined there. Nothing in the divine record had suggested that Old Testament monotheism would be radically disturbed by the appearance of the Messiah. A mass of evidence will support the proposition that the apostles never for one moment questioned the absolute oneness of God or that the appearance of Jesus created any theoretical problem about monotheism. It is therefore destructive of the unity of the Bible to suggest that in one or two texts in John, Jesus overturned his own creedal statement that the Father was, quote, the only true God, John 17, 3, or that he took himself far outside the category of human being by speaking of a conscious 
existence from eternity. Certainly his prayer for the glory which he had had before the world began, John 17, 5, can be easily understood as the desire for the glory which had been prepared for him in the Father's plan. The glory which Jesus intended for the disciples had also been, quote, given, according to John 17, verses 22 and 24, but they, of course, had not yet received it. I note that it's typical of Jewish thinking that what is promised for the future may be said to exist already in God's plan. Thus, in John 17, 5, Jesus already, quote, had glory with the Father. The glory was his promised reward. Christians, likewise, already, quote, have a reward stored up in heaven. It's a reward, quote, with the Father, Matthew 6, verse 1, and compare with that John 17, verse 5, glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. In some Jewish writings, pre-existence is attributed to the expected Messiah, but only in common with other venerable things and persons, such as the tabernacle, the law, the city of Jerusalem, the lawgiver Moses himself, and the people of Israel. That's a quote from Otley's book, The Doctrine of the Incarnation. It was typical of Jewish thinking that anything of supreme importance in God's purpose, Moses, the law, repentance, kingdom of God and the Messiah, had, quote, existed with God from eternity. In this vein, John can speak of the crucifixion having happened before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, verse 8. You can read there the King James Version. Peter, writing late in the first century, still knows of Jesus' quote, pre-existence only as an existence in the foreknowledge of God. 1 Peter 1, verse 20. His sermons in the early chapters of Acts reflect exactly the same view. But one of the favorite proof texts in John 8:58 that Jesus existed before Abraham. Does Jesus, after all, confuse everything by saying on the one hand that the Father alone is, quote, the only true God, John 17:3 and John 5:44, and that he himself is not God, but the Son of God, John 10, verse 36, and on the other hand, that he, Jesus, is also an uncreated being. Does he define his status within the recognizable categories of the Old Testament? John 10, verse 36, Psalm 82, verse 6, and Psalm 2, verse 7, only to pose an insoluble riddle by saying that he had been alive before the birth of Abraham. Is the Trinitarian problem, which has never been satisfactorily resolved, is it to be raised because of a single text in John? 
Would it not be wiser to read John 8.58 in the light of Jesus' later statement in John 10.36 and the rest of Scripture? In the thoroughly Jewish atmosphere which pervades the Gospel of John, it's most natural to think that Jesus spoke in terms that were current amongst those trained in the rabbinical tradition. In a Jewish context, asserting, quote, pre-existence does not mean that one is claiming to be an uncreated being. It does, however, imply that one has absolute significance in the divine plan. Jesus is certainly the central reason for creation, but the one God's creative activity and his plan for salvation were not manifested in a unique created being, the Son, until Jesus' birth. The person of Jesus originated when God's self-expression took form in a human being. We find that in John 1, verse 14. I note the comment from C.B. Caird in his development of the doctrine of Christ in the New Testament. He says this, the Jews had believed only in the pre-existence of a personification. Wisdom was a personification either of a divine attribute or a divine purpose, but never a person. Neither the fourth gospel nor Hebrews ever speaks of the eternal word or wisdom of God in terms which compel us to regard it as a person. It's a well-recognized fact that the conversations between Jesus and the Jews were often at cross-purposes. In John 8.57, Jesus had not in fact said, as the Jews seemed to think, that he, Jesus, had seen Abraham, but that Abraham had rejoiced to see Messiah's day. Verse 56. The patriarch was expecting to arise in the resurrection at the last day. John 11, verse 24, Matthew 8, verse 11, and then to take part in the messianic kingdom. Jesus was claiming superiority to Abraham. But in what sense? As the, quote, Lamb of God, he had been crucified before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, verse 8, and 1 Peter 1, verse 20. Not, of course, literally, but in God's plan. In this way also, Jesus, quote, was before Abraham. Thus, Abraham could look forward to the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom, the Messiah and the kingdom, therefore, pre-existed in the sense that they were seen by Abraham through the eyes of faith. I note that H.H. H. Vint, commenting on John 8.58, says, Jesus' earthly life was predetermined and foreseen by God before the time of Abraham. That's in Vint's the teaching of Jesus. The expression, quote, I am, 
in John 8.58 positively does not mean I am God. It is not, as so often alleged, the divine name of Exodus 3 verse 14, where Yahweh declared, I am the self-existent one, ego imi o on. Jesus nowhere claimed that title. The proper translation of ego imi in John 8.58 is, I am he, that is, the promised Christ. Compare with that the same expression found in John 4, verse 26. I who speak to you am he, that's to say, the Christ. Edwin Freed, in an article written in 1982, points out that in John 8.24, Egoimi is to be understood as a reference to Jesus' messiahship. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Before Abraham was born, Jesus had been foreknown. Compare 1 Peter 1 verse 20. Jesus here makes this stupendous claim to absolute significance in God's purpose. The Logos in John 1 and verse 1. There's no reason other than the force of habit to understand the word word in John 1.1 1, 1, to mean a second divine person before the birth of Jesus. A similar personification of wisdom in Proverbs 8.22 and 30 and Luke 11 verse 49 does not mean that, quote, she, wisdom, is a second person. There's no possible way of accommodating a, quote, second divine person in the revealed Godhead as John and Jesus understood it. The Father remains, as he always has been, quote, the only true God, the one who alone is God, John 5, verse 44. Reading the term logos, or word, with lowercase w, from an Old Testament perspective, we will understand it to be God's activity in creation, his powerful life-giving command by which all things came into existence. We'll find that in Psalm 33, verses 6 to 12. God's word, with lowercase w, is the power by which his purposes are furthered. We'll find that in Isaiah Chapter 55, verse 11. If we borrow from elsewhere in the New Testament, we will equate the word word with the creative salvation message, the gospel. This is the meaning throughout the New Testament. Matthew 13, verse 19, Galatians 6, verse 6, and so on. It is this complex of ideas which go to make up the significance of logos, or word, with lowercase w. Through it all things were made, and nothing was made without it. John 1 verse 3. In John 1 14, the word materializes in a real human being having a divine origin in his supernatural conception. From this moment on, 
in the fullness of time, Galatians 4 verse 4, the one God expresses himself in a new creation, the counterpart of the original creation in Adam. Jesus' conception and birth mark a new, unprecedented phase of God's purpose in history. As the second Adam, Jesus sets the scene for the whole program of salvation. He pioneers the way to immortality. In him, God's purpose is finally revealed in a human being, as we find also in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. All this does not mean, however, that Jesus gave up one life for another. That would seriously disturb the parallel with Adam, who was also, quote, son of God by direct creation, Luke 3, verse 38. It would also interfere with the pure monotheism revealed throughout the scriptures, which, quote, cannot be broken, John 10, verse 35. Rather, God begins to speak to us in the first century AD in a new son. His last word to the world, Hebrews 1, verse 1, this is what is meant by the word becoming flesh. It is the notion of an eternal existing son which so violently disrupts the biblical scheme, challenging monotheism and threatening the real humanity of Jesus. And John warns against that in 1 John 4 verse 2 and 2 John verse 7. This understanding of Jesus in John's Gospel will bring John into harmony with his fellow apostles and the monotheism of the Old Testament will be preserved intact. The facts of church history show that the unrestricted monotheism of the Hebrew Scriptures was soon after New Testament times abandoned under the influence of alien Greek ideas. At the same time, the predetermined framework for messiahhood was forgotten, and with it the reality of the future messianic kingdom. The result was years of conflict, still unresolved, over how an already existing second divine person could be combined with a fully human being in a single individual. The concept of literal pre-existence for the Messiah is the intruding idea, the part of the Christological puzzle which will not fit. Without it, a clear picture of Jesus emerges within the terms of the Hebrew Revelation and the teachings of the Apostles. God the Father remains indeed the only true God, the one who alone is God. As we read in John 17, verse 3, and John 5, verse 44. And the oneness of Jesus with his Father is found in a unity of function performed by one who is truly the Son, as the Bible everywhere else understands that term. John 10, verse 36. If Christianity is to be revived and unified, it will have to be on the basis of belief in Jesus, the Messiah of the Bible, unspoiled 
by the misleading speculations of the Greeks, who displayed very little sympathy for the Hebrew world into which Christianity was born. The divinity, so-called, of Jesus. To say that Jesus is not God is not to deny that he's uniquely invested with the divine nature. Divinity is, so to speak, quote, built in to him by virtue of his unique conception under the influence of the Holy Spirit, as well as by the Spirit which dwelt in him in full measure, John 3.34. Paul recognizes that, quote, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him, Colossians 1.19 and Colossians 2 verse 9. In seeing the man Jesus, we see the glory of his Father, John 1.14. We perceive that God himself was, quote, in the Messiah, reconciling the world to himself, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19. The Son of God is therefore the pinnacle of God's creation, the full expression of the divine character in a human being. Though the glory of the Father had been manifested to a much less degree in Adam, Psalm 8, verse 5, compared with that Genesis 1, 26, in Jesus, the Father's will is fully explained. John 1, 18, New American Standard Version. None of what Paul says about Jesus takes him out of the category of human being. The presence of God which dwelt in the temple did not turn the temple into God. It is seldom observed that a high degree of so-called divinity is ascribed by Paul also to the Christian who has the spirit of Messiah dwelling in him, according to Ephesians 3.19. As God was in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.19, so Christ was in Paul, Galatians 2, verse 20. And Paul prays that the Christians may be, quote, filled up to all the fullness of God, Ephesians 1, 23, and 3, verse 19. Peter speaks of the faithful having, quote, divine nature, 2 Peter 1, verse 4. What is true of the Christian is true to a much higher degree of Jesus, who is, quote, the pioneer leading others through the process of salvation after successfully completing the course himself, Hebrews 2, verse 10. In the form of God, despite the massive evidence from the New Testament showing that the apostles always distinguished Jesus from the one God, the Father, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Many confidently find the traditional view of Jesus as a second uncreated being, fully God, in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. It is something of a paradox that the writer on Christology in the Dictionary of the Apostolic Church can say that, quote, Paul never gives to Christ the name or description of God. But nevertheless, he finds in Philippians 2 a description of Christ's eternal pre-life, so to speak, in heaven.
a recent and widely acclaimed study of the biblical view of Jesus, Christology in the Making by James Dunn, alerts us to the danger of reading into Paul's words the conclusions of later generation of theologians, the so-called fathers of the Greek church in the centuries following the completion of the New Testament writings. The tendency to find in Scripture what we already believe is natural, since none of us can easily face the threatening possibility that our so-called received understanding does not coincide with the Bible. The problem, of course, is even more acute if we are involved in teaching or preaching the Bible. However, are we not demanding of Paul more than he could possibly give by asking him to present us in a few brief phrases with an eternal being other than the Father? This would so obviously threaten the strict monotheism which Paul everywhere else expresses so clearly, as in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Ephesians 4, verse 6, and 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. It would also raise the whole Trinitarian problem of which Paul, brilliant theologian as he was, is quite unaware. Looking afresh at Philippians 2, we must ask the question whether Paul, in these verses, has really made what would be his only allusion to Jesus having been alive before his birth. The context of his remarks shows him urging the saints to be humble. It has often been asked whether it is in any way probable that Paul would enforce this lesson by asking his readers to adopt the frame of mind of one who, having been eternally God, made the decision to become man. It might also be strange for Paul to refer to the pre-existent so-called Jesus as Jesus the Messiah, thus reading back into eternity the name and office Jesus received at birth. Paul can be readily understood in Philippians 2 in terms of a favorite theme, Adam Christology. It was Adam who was in the image of God as God's son, Genesis 1.26 and Luke 3.38, while Jesus, the second Adam, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45, was also in the form of God. The two words image and form can be interchanged. However, whereas Adam, under the influence of Satan, grasped at equality with God, I quote from Genesis 3, 5, you will be as God. Jesus did not do this, however, though he had every right to divine office since he was the Messiah reflecting the divine presence. He did not consider equality with God something to be clutched at. Instead, he gave up all his privileges refusing Satan's offer of power over the world's kingdoms, Matthew 4, verses 8 to 10, and behaved throughout his life as a servant, even to the point of going to a criminal's death on the cross. 
In response to this life of humility, God has now exalted Jesus to the status of Messianic Lord, with a lowercase l, at the right hand of the Father, as Psalm 110 predicted. Paul does not say that Jesus was regaining a position which he had temporarily given up. He appears rather to have gained his exalted office for the first time following his resurrection. Though he had all his life been the Messiah, his position was publicly confirmed when he was, quote, made both Lord and Messiah by being raised from the dead, Acts 2.36 and Romans 1, verse 4. If we read Paul's account of Jesus' life in this way as a description of the Lord's continuous self-denial, a close parallel will be seen with another of Paul's commentaries on Jesus' career. I quote, Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. While Adam had fallen, Jesus voluntarily stepped down. The traditional reading of Philippians 2 depends almost entirely on understanding Jesus' condition in the form of God as a reference to a pre-existent life in heaven. Some translations have done much to bolster this view. The verb was, in the phrase was in the form of God, occurs frequently in the New Testament and by no means carries the sense of existing in eternity. Some versions try to force that meaning into it. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, Paul says that a man ought not to cover his head since he is, same verb there, in the image and glory of God. The verb here is no different from the, quote, was, describing Jesus as in the form of God. If ordinary man is in God's glory and image, how much more Jesus, who is the perfect human representative of God in whom all the attributes of the divine nature dwelt. Colossians 2 verse 9. Paul's intention in Philippians 2 is not to introduce the vast subject of an eternal second divine being who became man, but to teach a simple lesson in humility. We are to have the same attitude as Jesus, to think as he did. We are not being asked to imagine ourselves as eternal divine beings about to surrender godhood in order to come to the earth as men. It is not widely known that many have had serious reservations about reading Philippians 2 as a statement about pre-existence. A former Regis Professor of Divinity wrote in 1923, I quote, Paul is begging the Philippians to cease from dissensions and to act with humility towards each other. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, he's exhorting his readers to be liberal in almsgiving. It is asked whether it would be quite natural for Paul to enforce these two simple moral lessons by incidental references 
and the only reference that he ever makes to the vast problem of the mode of the so-called incarnation. And it is thought by many that his homely appeals would have more effect if he pointed to the inspiring example of Christ's humility and self-sacrifice in his human life. As in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1, I exhort you, Paul said, by the meekness and forbearance of Christ. The author of these comments, A. H. McNeil, suggests the following paraphrase. Though Jesus was throughout the whole of his life divine, yet he did not think it a privilege to be maintained at all costs, to be treated as on an equality with God, but of his own accord emptied himself of all self-assertion or divine honor by adopting the nature of a slave. Paul is pointing to the fact that Jesus appeared on the human scene as any other man, quote, in the likeness of men. His life, looked at as a whole, was the continuous process of self-humbling, culminating in the death on the cross. The second Adam, unlike the first, submits himself entirely to the will of God and in consequence receives the highest exaltation, head of the new creation. The parallel between Adam and Jesus forms the basis of Paul's thinking about the Messiah. Christ bears the same relationship to the new creation, the church, as Adam did to the creation begun in Genesis. Beginning with Jesus, humanity makes a new start. In Jesus, as representative man, the new Adam, society begins all over again. This correspondence is seriously disturbed if Jesus, after all, did not originate as a man. As Adam is created a, quote, son of God, Luke 3.38, so Jesus' conception in the womb of Mary constitutes him son of God, Luke 1, verse 35. Certainly Adam is of the earth, 1 Corinthians 15.47, while Jesus is, quote, the man from heaven. Not, according to Paul, coming from heaven at his birth, but at his second coming to raise the faithful dead. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. At this point, we see the flaw in the traditional ideas about so-called pre-existence. The movement of Christ from heaven to earth centers in Paul's mind on the parousia, or second coming. In later thinking, the center of interest was transferred to his birth. Thus, curiously, the traditional scheme looks backwards into history while the Bible orients us primarily towards the Messiah's future coming in glory to establish the kingdom on earth. It is as head of the new creation and the center of God's cosmic purpose that Paul describes Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. 
His intention is to show the supreme position which Jesus has won through resurrection and his preeminence in the new order as against the claims of rival systems of religion by which the Colossians were being threatened. All authorities were created in Christ, Colossians 1.16. So Jesus had claimed also all power in heaven and earth is mine, Matthew 28, verse 18. All things here means for Paul the intelligent, animate creation consisting of, quote, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, which were created in Christ, very probably because of Christ in that verse. They were through Christ, but not by Christ. And they were also then for Christ. It is his kingdom which Paul has in mind, in Colossians 1.13, Jesus is the firstborn of every creature as well as the firstborn from the dead, in Colossians 1.15 and 18. The term firstborn designates Jesus the leading member of the new created order as well as its source, a position which he attained by being the first to receive immortality through resurrection. John, in Revelation 3, verse 14, similarly calls Jesus, quote, the beginning of the creation of God, which most naturally means that he himself was part of that creation. That firstborn designates in the Bible the one who holds the supreme office can be shown from Psalm 89, verse 27, where the, quote, firstborn, the Messiah, is the, quote, highest of the kings of the earth. One chosen like David from the people and exalted. Psalm 89, verse 19. Again, Paul has developed the messianic concepts already well established by the Hebrew scriptures. In none of Paul's statements are we compelled to find a, quote, second eternal divine being. He presents us rather with the glorified second Adam now raised to the divine office for which man was originally created. Genesis 1, verse 26, and Psalm 8. Jesus now represents the human race as the head of of the new order of humanity. He intercedes for us as supreme high priest in the heavenly temple, Hebrews 8, verse 1. In ascribing such elevated titles to the risen Lord, there is no reason to think that Paul has infringed his own clear monotheism expressed in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, where he says, and I quote, to us Christians, there is one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus, Messiah. Nothing in Colossians forces us to believe that Paul, without warning, has parted company with Matthew, Mark, Luke, Peter, and John, and deviated from the absolute monotheism which he states so carefully and clearly elsewhere. 
as in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 and Ephesians 4 verse 6, and which was deeply embedded in his whole theological background. The inhabited earth to come of which we speak. The writer to the Hebrews lays particular emphasis on the humanity of Jesus. He was tempted in all points as we are, and yet he was without sin. Hebrews 4 verse 15. God originally made the ages through, not by the Son. That's to say, with his destiny as Messiah in view. Hebrews 1 verse 2. After communicating with us in different ways and at different times through spokesmen in the past, God has now finally spoken to us in one who is truly Son. Hebrews 1 verse 2. The writer does not mean to tell us what Jesus did not know, according to Mark 10, 6, that Jesus had been the active agent in the Genesis creation. It was God, the Father, who had rested on the seventh day after completing his work. Hebrews 4, verse 4 and 10. It is God also who causes his Son to be begotten brought into existence in the womb of Mary, Luke 1, 35. Again, when he brings the Son into the world, we read in Hebrews 1, verse 6. When the Messiah is reintroduced into the world, a number of important statements about him will become history. Firstly, Messiah's throne will be established. Hebrews 1 verse 8. Compare, quote, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, then he will sit on his throne of glory. Matthew 25 verse 31. As representing the divine majesty of the Father, the messianic title God will be applied to Jesus as it once was to the judges of Israel who foreshadowed the supreme judge of Israel, who is the Messiah, Psalm 82, verse 6. Another prophecy from Psalm 102, verse 25, will also be realized in the coming kingdom of Messiah. The foundations of a new earth and a new heaven will be laid, as in Isaiah 51, verse 16, and Isaiah 65, verse 17, foresee. Hebrews 1.10 can easily be misread to mean that the Lord Messiah was responsible for the creation in Genesis. However, this overlooks the author's quotation from the Septuagint of the thoroughly messianic Psalm 102. Moreover, he specifically states that his series of truths about the Son refers to the time when he is brought into the earth. Hebrews 1.6 And in Hebrews 2.5 he tells us once again that it's the inhabited earth of the future of which he is speaking in chapter 1. The writer must be allowed to provide his own commentary. 
His concern is with the messianic kingdom, not the creation in Genesis. Because we do not share the messianic vision of the New Testament as we ought, our tendency is to look back rather than forward. We must attune ourselves to the thoroughly messianic outlook of the entire Bible. The Hebrew background to the New Testament. It will be useful by way of summary and to orient ourselves to the thought world of the authors of the New Testament to lay out the principal passages of the Hebrew Scriptures from which they derived their unified understanding of the person of Christ. Nowhere can it be shown that the Messiah was to be an uncreated being, a fact which should cause us to look outside the Bible for the source of such a revolutionary concept. The original purpose for man, made in the image and glory of God, was to exercise dominion over the earth. Genesis 1 verse 26 and Psalm 8. That ideal is never lost beyond our recovery, for the psalmist speaks of the, quote, glory with which man has been potentially crowned, so that, quote, all things are to be subjected under his feet. Psalm 8, verses 5 and 6. As the divine plan unfolds, it becomes clear that the promised, quote, seed of the woman, who is to reverse the disaster caused by Satan, Genesis 3.15, will be a descendant of David, 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 to 16. He will call God his father, 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, and he will be appointed as God's son, the Messiah, to whom God entrusts rulership of the earth, Psalm 2. Prior to taking up his royal office, however, the Messiah is to sit at the right hand of the Father and bear the title Lord, as in Psalm 110, verse 1. As Son of Man, representative man, he will take his place in heaven prior to receiving from God authority to administer a universal empire. Daniel 2, verse 44, Daniel 7, verses 14, 18, 22, and 27, Acts 3, verses 20 and 21. Having at his first coming suffered for the sins of the people, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, he is to come again as God's firstborn, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Psalm 89, verse 27, foreshadowed by David, who was also chosen from the people. Psalm 89, verses 19 and 20. As the second Moses, the Messiah was to arise in Israel, Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, deriving his divine sonship from a supernatural birth from a virgin, as in Luke 135, and Isaiah 7, verse 14. And being confirmed as God's Son with power through his resurrection 
from the dead. Romans 1 verse 4. As high priest, the Messiah now serves his people from heaven. Hebrews 8 verse 1. And he awaits the time of the restoration of all things. Acts 3.21. When he's destined to be reintroduced into the earth as king of kings. The divine figure of Psalm 45. As in Hebrews 1 verses 6 to 8. At that time in the new age of the kingdom. He will rule with his disciples. Matthew 19 verse 28. Luke 22, verses 28 to 30. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. Revelation 2, verse 26. Revelation 3, verse 21. And Revelation 20, verses 4 and following. As Adam heads the original creation of human beings on earth, so Jesus is the created head of the new order of humanity in whom the ideals of the human race will be fulfilled. Hebrews 2 verse 7. Within this messianic framework, the person and work of Jesus can be explained in terms understood by the apostles. Their purpose, even when presenting the most, quote, advanced Christology, is to proclaim belief in Jesus as Messiah and Son of God, John 20, verse 31, who is the center of God's whole purpose in history, John 1, 14. Though Jesus is obviously coordinated in a most intimate way with his Father, the latter remains the, quote, only true God of biblical monotheism. John 17, verse 3. Jesus thus represents the presence of the one God, his Father, in the man Jesus, Emmanuel or Emmanuel, the one God is present with us. John 14, verse 9. From Son of God to God the Son. We have searched out the Jesus of the Bible by assembling the various strands of the data revealed in the inspired records. The picture that emerges is different from the picture presented by traditional Christianity in that the person of Christ we have described does not complicate the first principle of biblical faith, namely belief in one who alone is truly and absolutely God. John 17.3 and John 5, verse 44. It is easy to see how the biblical Messiah became, quote, God the Son of the post-biblical theologians. It was possible only when the essential messianism of the Bible was gradually suppressed. The term Son of God, which in Scripture is a purely messianic title describing the glory of man in intimate fellowship with the Father, was from the second century misunderstood and reapplied to the divine nature of a God-man. At the same time, the designation Son of Man, no less a title of the Messiah as representative man, 
was made to refer to his human nature. In this way, both titles, Son of God and Son of Man, were emptied of their original messianic significance and their biblical meaning was lost. While the evidence of the Old Testament was largely rejected, as well as the evidence of the Synoptic Gospels, Acts, Peter, James, and John in the book of Revelation, a series of verses in John's Gospel and two or three in Paul's epistles were so-called reinterpreted to accommodate the new idea that Jesus was the second member of an eternal trinity, co-equally and co-essentially God. That Jesus, however, is scarcely the Jesus of the biblical documents. He is another Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4. The man and his message obscured. With the loss of the biblical meaning of Messiah went a parallel loss of the meaning of the messianic kingdom which is the center of all Jesus' teaching and the heart of the gospel. Luke 4 verse 43, Acts 8 verse 12, Acts 28 verses 23 and 31. The hope for the establishment of the Messiah's kingdom in a renewed earth, the theme of all Old Testament prophecy, which Jesus came to confirm, according to Romans 15.8, this hope was replaced by the hope of, quote, heaven when you die. And the massive piece of propaganda convinced and continues to convince an uninstructed public that Jesus never believed in anything so, quote, earthly, political, or, so to speak, unspiritual as the kingdom of God on earth. The result of this radical change, which gradually overcame the outlook of the church beginning as early as the second century, has been a loss of the central message of Jesus, the gospel about the kingdom of God. Luke 4, verse 43, Acts 8, 12, Acts 28, verses 23 and 31, as well as a misunderstanding about who he was. Churches are left in some embarrassment, explaining how, on the one hand, Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, while he's supposed to have rejected the Old Testament promises that the Messiah is coming to rule on the earth. The theory usually advanced is that Jesus upheld the Old Testament as far as it taught an ethical ideal of love, but that he rejected the prophet's vision of a catastrophic divine intervention in history leading to a renewal of society on earth under the kingdom of God. In short, Jesus is supposed to have claimed to be the Messiah, but at the same time to have eliminated all hope for the restoration of the theocracy for which his contemporaries longed. There's no doubt at all that the faithful in Israel were indeed looking forward to the arrival of Messiah 
to rule on earth. But Jesus, so it has long been maintained, parted company with such so-called crude expectations. The question as to why the Jews expected a concrete messianic empire on earth is silently bypassed. If it were asked, the answer would obviously have to be that the Old Testament scriptures had predicted it in every detail. Churches will have to come to the realization that they are not playing fair with the Bible by allowing only the first act of the divine drama, the part which concerns the suffering and dying Messiah, while dismissing the second act which is the future arrival of the Messiah as triumphant king, God's envoy for creating an effective and lasting peace on earth. Jesus' resurrection and his ascension and his present session at the right hand of the Father are only part of the triumph of God's Son as the New Testament understands it. A serious and fundamental misconception underlies the traditional ways of thinking about Jesus' role in history. It has to do with the Messiah's political theocratic function, which is the principal ingredient of Messiahship. Until now, every effort has been made to sustain the belief Contrary to the most straightforward statements of Scripture, that Jesus promises to the Church that it is to rule with him in the future Messianic kingdom, as in Matthew 19.28 and Luke 22.28-30, are to be applied to the present era. What continues to be overlooked is that it is, quote, when Jesus comes in his glory. At the end of the present age, Matthew 25, 31, in the new age, when he takes up his office as king, Matthew 19, 28, it is only then, in the future, that the church is to rule with him. Lest there should be the slightest doubt, the chorus of divine beings sings of the church drawn from every nation whom God has constituted a line of kings and priests destined to, quote, reign on the earth. Revelation 5, verse 10. The pure messianism of Psalm 2 remains as strong as ever in Revelation 2, verse 26 and Revelation 3, verse 21. And these are Jesus' very own words to the church, as we read in Revelation 1, verse 1, and Revelation 22, verse 16. The Jesus of the Scriptures is none other than the Messiah of Old Testament prophecy and apocalyptic literature. There's an urgent need for churchgoers to involve themselves in a personal investigation of the Scriptures unshackled by this or that creed at present so willingly accepted, quote, on faith. We will have to be honest enough to admit that majority opinions are not automatically the correct ones 
and that tradition, uncritically accepted, may have gone far in burying the original faith as Jesus and the apostles taught it. It may be true that we should take seriously the observation of Canon H.L. Googe when he wrote of the disaster which occurred, quote, when the Greek and Roman, rather than the Hebrew mind, came to dominate the church. It was, and I quote again, a disaster in doctrine and practice, according to Canon Googe, quote, from which the church has never recovered. Recovery can only begin when due notice is taken of John's solemn warning that, quote, there is no falsehood so great as the denial of the Messiahship of Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Jesus must be proclaimed as Messiah with all that that highly colored term means in its biblical setting. What the scholars admit. In an article on, quote, preaching Christ in the Dictionary of Christ and the Apostles, James Denny says, I quote, It is idle to say that Jesus is the Christ if we do not know who or what Jesus is. It has no meaning to say that an unknown person is at God's right hand, exalted and sovereign, the more ardently men believed that God had given them a prince and saviour in this exaltation, the more eager would they be to know all that could be possibly known about him. This fine statement is followed by another valuable observation that, quote, there is no preaching of Christ that does not rest on the basis on which the apostles preaching rested. What then did Jesus and the apostles preach? Quotation, one of the ways in which Jesus represented his absolute significance for true religion was this. He regarded himself as the Messiah. The messianic role was one which could be filled by only one person, and he himself was the person in question. He and no other person was the Christ. End of quotation. All this is excellent, but the thoughts which follow begin to reveal an uneasiness about the Messiahship of Christ, despite protestations to the contrary. I quote again from James Denny. But is the Christ a conception which we, in another age, can make use of for some purpose? Only it must be answered if we employ the term with much latitude. James Denny does not seem to be aware that he's about to undermine the biblical messiahship of Jesus, and since Jesus cannot be separated from his messianic office, to obscure the identity of Jesus. He goes on, I quote, It is certain that for those who first came to believe in Jesus as the Christ, 
the name was much more definite than it is for us. It had a shape and color which it has no longer. But this must imply that we have lost sight of what it means to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Denny gives the impression that we are now at liberty to make up our own idea of messiahship, disregarding the biblical definition of it. It was, however, precisely this tendency which brought disaster to the church soon after the death of the apostles. The church began to create its own conception of the Messiah and in so doing lost touch with the Jesus of the Bible. Professor Denny says that the term Messiah, quote, had expectations connected with it which for us have lost the vitality which they once possessed. Exactly. But why have they lost their meaning? if not because we have ceased to believe what the Bible tells us about the Messiah. I quote again, in particular, says Professor Denny, the eschatological, that is having to do with the future, the eschatological associations of the term Messiah do not have for us the importance which they had for the first believers. In the teaching of Jesus, these associations cluster round the title Son of Man, which is used as synonymous with the Christ. Nothing was more characteristic of primitive Christianity than the second coming of Jesus in the character of Messiah. It was the very essence of what the early church meant by hope. Our outlook on the future is different from theirs. End of quotation from James Denny. But I ask, on what authority is it different? Surely one cannot lay aside one of the most characteristic features of the Christianity of the Bible and continue to call what remains the same faith. It is this subtle departure from the characteristic hope of the early church which should signal for us the perilous difference between what we call Christianity and what the apostles understand by that name. It makes no sense to say that we are Christians if we have abandoned the essential characteristic of the New Testament conception of the Messiah in whom we claim to believe. Professor Denny is rightly suspicious of a tendency among scholars to, quote, assume tacitly that it is a mistake to believe in Christ as those who first preached him believed. Such criticism makes it its business to make Jesus' personality exactly like our own and his consciousness exactly what our own may be. Indeed, this is precisely our problem, but it is also Denny's problem, who admits that, quote, our outlook on the future is different from the apostles. But their outlook on the future was based upon their central understanding of Jesus as the Messiah, 
the ruler of the future kingdom of God, whose power was manifested in advance in Jesus' ministry. By what possible logic can we give up the hope which was, quote, the essential characteristic of apostolic Christianity and still claim to be Christians? In this self-contradiction lies the great failure of churches to remain faithful to Jesus as Messiah. We have preferred our own outlook and our own view of Messiahship, and we have felt it appropriate to attach to our own idea the name of Jesus. Have we not thus created, quote, another Jesus after the image of our Gentile hearts? A perusal of standard works on Christology reveals some remarkable admissions which may encourage the reader to conduct a personal quest for the truth about Jesus. In an article on the Son of God, William Sanday, once professor of divinity at Oxford, asks the question whether there are any texts in the four Gospels which might lead us to the idea of Jesus as the pre-existent Son of God. He concludes that all the statements about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke refer to the life of Christ on earth. There's not a single reference to his having been Son of God before his birth. If we examine John's Gospel, I quote again, we have to look about somewhat for expressions that are free from ambiguity. Perhaps there are not any. That's from Hastings' Dictionary of the Bible. Here, then, is the statement of a leading expert to the effect that there may not be a single reference in all four Gospels to Jesus being the Son of God before his birth. Yet it remains a fact that the churches teach the eternal sonship of Jesus as a basic and indispensable tenet of the faith. Professor Sanday is left guessing why Matthew, Mark, and Luke know nothing about Jesus' preexistence. It is probable that the writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had not reflected upon the subject at all and did not produce a portion of our Lord's teaching upon it. When he comes to the epistles, William Sanday can only conjecture that there might be a reference to a pre-existing son in Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3, but by no means necessarily. On Colossians 1.15, he says that, quote, the leading idea in firstborn is that of the legal rights of the firstborn, his precedence over all who are born after him. He adds that, quote, it seems wrong to exclude the idea of priority in time as well. He concludes his remarks by quoting a German theologian as saying that, quote, from the Old Testament and rabbinism, the works of the rabbis, there is no road to the doctrine of the divinity of Christ. 
as to say that he is God. Professor Wermle maintained that, quote, the title Son of God is strictly Jewish and that the further step from Son of God to God the Son was taken upon Gentile ground through lax ideas brought in by the converts from paganism. Statements of this kind show on what shaky ground the whole edifice of, quote, pre-existent sonship is built. The possibility must be squarely faced that the dogmatic statements about Jesus, which date from post-biblical times, rely on their own authority rather than that of the apostles. The wisest course is to take our stand upon the dogmatic statements of the scripture itself and to recognize with Jesus that, quote, eternal life consists in this, that they may come to know the Father as the only true God and Jesus, the Messiah, whom he sent. John 17, verse 3. Jesus, the man mediator. The Jesus presented by the apostles is not, quote, God the Son. This title appears nowhere in the Bible. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah whose origin is to be traced to his miraculous conception. Luke 1.35 The one God of the Scriptures remains in the New Testament, the one person revealed in the Old Testament as the Creator God of Israel. Jesus, quote, himself man, according to 1 Timothy 2.5, mediates between the one God, the Father, and mankind. This Jesus can save, quote, to the uttermost, Hebrews 7 verse 25. Any other Jesus must be avoided as a deceptive counterfeit. And it is all too easy to be taken in, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4. The Church's Confession. The Church which Jesus founded is based on the central confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Matthew 16, verse 16. This confession is seriously distorted when a new unbiblical meaning is attached to the term Son of God. That such a distortion has occurred should be evident to students of the history of theology. Its effects are with us to this day. What is urgently needed is a return to the rock confession of Peter, who, in the presence of Jesus, Matthew 16, 16, in the presence of the Jews, Acts 2, and at the end of his ministry declared that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, foreknown in the counsels of God, but manifested in these last times. 1 Peter 1, verse 20. The stupendous fact of Jesus' Messiahship is understood only by divine revelation. Matthew 16, verse 17. Christianity's founding figure must be presented within the Hebrew biblical framework. It is there that we discover the real historical Jesus 
who is also the Jesus of faith. Outside that framework, we invent, quote, another Jesus, because his biblical descriptive titles have lost their original meanings. Compare with that 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4. When Jesus' titles are invested with a new unscriptural meaning, it is clear that they no longer convey his identity truthfully. When this happens, the Christian faith is imperiled. Our task, therefore, must be to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah of the prophet's vision, and we must mean by Messiah and Son of God what Jesus and the New Testament mean by these terms. The Church can claim to be the custodian of authentic Christianity only when it speaks in harmony with the Apostles and tells the world who Jesus is.